I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking, no cooperation from the information desk when I asked about this the last time I went to the Air Force Museum. This is... That was a long sentence. This is Encounter 64, Storm Hangar 18. Well, this is what we like to call an evergreen podcast, meaning that people can start anywhere and we aren't particularly tied down to current events. This one does require some background. A while back, someone whose name isn't worth mentioning set up an event on Facebook called Storm Area 51. The idea was that everyone would show up in Nevada on September 20th, two days hence from this episode being released, and uncover all the UFO secrets. They can't stop all of us, was the tagline. From the beginning, this was presented in a joking manner, talking about doing sort of anime-style running attacks on the place and everything, but people seemed to latch on to it, and and it became a bit of a viral sensation. As we record this, the plan seems to be for a music festival, or two, or three, or four, to take place there, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of enthusiasm or cooperation from the people who actually live in and around Rachel, Nevada. Um, permits are not being allowed, and and a lot of these things are just falling apart. Some of us on on Twitter have referred to it as a potential Area 51 fire festival, which would be a whole lot of fun as long as nobody dies out there in the desert. But Area 51 wasn't the first or only not-quite-secret location that had a reputation of being the repository for UFO truth. In the 1970s and into the 80s, Hangar 18 at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, was spoken of as being the repository, the the vault, the Raiders of the Lost Ark-style warehouse of all the flying saucer answers. The name, however, is not confined to the UFO scene and, and seeped into popular culture. There was a sci-fi movie, Hangar 18, that appeared in 1980 and starred Darren McGavin and Robert Vaughn. It's actually not a bad movie. I mean, it's not a good movie, but it's not a bad movie. There's a song by Megadeth called Hangar 18. It's even lent its name to, quote, Southern California's largest chain of indoor climbing gyms with eight awesome facilities conveniently placed throughout Southern California, end quote. It's the name of a hip-hop group, and guitar icon Yingwi Malmsteen has made sure all bases were covered with a song called Hangar 18 slash Area 51. It may not get all the attention that Area 51 has gotten over the years, but it's firmly lodged in the saucerological consciousness. So, grab your cameras, pull on some sturdy hiking boots, and be sure you've got a good supply of water. We're going to storm Hangar 18. First of all, cards on the table, this episode would have been much less good or valuable or doable even without Kurt Collins and Claude Folkstrom's excellent articles, uh, Robert Spencer Carr in Hangar 18 and uh, Captured UFOs and Building Hangar 18, a chronology, all of which they published in 2018 on their blog, The Saucers That Time Forgot. If you dig the types of stories we tell here, then it's absolutely worth checking them out. What's Hangar 18? In case you didn't know, here's a thumbnail definition. Hangar 18 is the supposed facility at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, where the powers that be store wreckage and bodies and everything from UFO crash retrievals. 
So where does Hangar 18's story begin? That's a good question, because the narrative of Hangar 18 has been the subject of our favorite phenomenon, flying saucer retconning. That's when you take a concept that emerged in, say, the 70s, and incorporate it into UFO stories going all the way back to, say, 1947. The Hangar 18 story has a lot of that. But it's almost understandable. As Collins and Falkstrom track in their chronology article, references to the Air Force or other military officials gaining possession of UFO materials goes almost all the way back to Kenneth Arnold's initial sighting in the summer of 1947, or even a couple weeks before, if we look at the Maury Island incident, for example. And yes, we're doing an episode on that uh, sooner than you may think. So basically, some um, stuff was ejected from a saucer during the Washington State sighting in the summer of 1947. Two Army Air Force men came out to investigate. They took samples of the material with them to analyze, and as the headline of the Tacoma Times later said, quote, wrecked bomber carried disc secret. So they were on a bomber. They were going to take it back to somewhere and analyze the material. The bomber crashed. So where was the bomber headed? Since it had to have a destination, that destination probably is a place that has a lot of crashed saucer relics, right? And it wasn't just big cases like Maury Island that got this treatment from newspapers. Other stories throughout the summer of 1947 presented accounts of Army Air Force people taking possession of flying disc materials. But there were a lot of hoaxes and a lot of misidentifications at that time. So maybe what the Air Force had was not necessarily outer space spaceship material, but, you know, a lot of hubcaps that ended up in that uh, Indiana Jones warehouse, right? So then there's Roswell. We know the Army Air Force took wreckage away from Roswell, so what if there was one place this stuff went? The headquarters of the Army Air Force and later Air Force Air Material Command Wright-Patterson seemed to be a good location. Project Sign, Grudge, and Blue Book were run out of Wright-Pat also. Probably the first mention of Wright-Patterson as a repository for saucer stuff is connected with the notorious alleged crash and retrieval near Aztec, New Mexico. We covered that story to a fair degree way back in Bonus Encounter 1, a talk on crashed saucer stories I gave at Shag Harbor in 2017, and you can check that out for the basics. But in his book, Behind the Flying Saucers, Frank Scully made mention of Dayton in his 20 Questions for the Air Force that originally had been published as an article in Variety magazine. Did the Air Force ever make public what the explosives, looking like a dismantled flying saucer, were, which they transported in Army trucks from a Western research base to Dayton, Ohio? Scully also recounts this exchange between Silas Newton and renowned scientist Dr. G., the good doctor had just described two craft, spacecraft, one large and one small. Newton wants to know more. Newton asked, where is the little ship? We have that one in the laboratories at the present time, replied Dr. G. As soon as I get your appointment through, I'll be authorized to let you inspect it. In time, Newton's appointment came through, but by then the ship had been dismantled and reportedly shipped to Dayton, and all comment thereafter prescribed, denied, or ignored. So, there in the early 50s, there's an emerging sense that Dayton is where it's at. This continued during the decade with references to the Wright Field story. One important source for this was commercial pilot William B. Nash. Nash had experienced his own sighting and gotten involved in the saucer scene. In October 1953, he sent a letter to NICAP head Donald Kehoe. In it, he discusses how the Wright Field story was confirmed. I was on an ABC WJZ TV program with three university professors on the saucer subject. 
Before the program, some tall man, about 35, with dark hair and dark-rimmed glasses, about 200 pounds, with a voice like a commentator, took me down the TV hall and asked my personal opinion about the saucers. He seemed excited. I told him I was convinced they were interplanetary, and he said that I was right, not that he thought I was. He said he'd just returned from Washington and had a lot of inside dope, wouldn't give me his name, and that another reporter and a life reporter had the info too, but were sworn not to publish it till told they could do so. He said that the reason the saucers were over Washington in droves in July was because the Air Force had operated a radio found in a cracked-up saucer, that the right field story was true. The Air Force had several saucers. I tipped John Duberry, who I believe passed the info to you in Washington. Did you ever get anywhere with that one? The UFOs over Washington in 53 had, of course, been a big story, and I love the notion that the Air Force was playing around with a surplus flying saucer radio and all the UFOs sort of show up in response. In his reply, uh, Major Kehoe was a little bit cagey on the whole saucer debris angle. Your dope on the Washington sightings is very interesting. If you ever see the unknown gent who tipped you to the story, try to put him in touch with me, will ya? Though I've never accepted the rumors that the Air Force had some saucers secretly, I know it could be true. However, I'd want some very factual proof before making any public statements on that. Listeners, our homework for the next few weeks is to find a way to reintroduce dope as a synonym for information into common currency here in the Anglophone world. I think, uh, I think that is something that is absolutely necessary for the betterment of humanity. Anyway, if Nash was approached by someone as he describes, is there good reason to believe it was anything other than a prank or, or some kind of disinformation? And Kehoe played it pretty chill here, leaving open the possibility of Air Force collection of saucer debris, while at the same time pretty much, pretty much making clear that he would say nothing publicly without a lot of proof. Kehoe was a pretty canny operator and wasn't going to be drawn into anything that sounded too outrageous. Nash continued his claims, however, including uh, during a speech in Miami that triggered a response from the Air Force. Washington, a spokesman today termed without basis an assertion that the Air Force has recovered hunks of flying saucers and just isn't telling the public about them. The Air Force position, he said, is that given enough factual data, every flying saucer report over the last six years could be explained in natural earthly, non-sensational terms. Quote, we don't think the so-called saucers come from outer space or from a foreign government, end quote, the spokesman said. Bill Nash, a Pan-American World Airways pilot, told the Greater Miami Aviation Association recently he was convinced that, quote, the Air Force has collected hardware from outer space, end quote. So, apart from newspapers, uh, during the 1950s, a couple of publications that we've covered on some of our Zine Scene episodes discussed the Wright Field story as well. The most extensive coverage was from Jim Mosley in his Nexus magazine. In the third issue, from late 1954, we get the Wright Field story, or Who's Lying? This is an extensive write-up that was triggered by a letter that Mosley received. My opinion is that the Air Force is holding a saucer or parts thereof at Wright-Patterson Field. I base this opinion on a great number of collective items and one solid item, a testimony by a woman who was a whack at Wright when in the fall of 1952 they were on a red and white aircraft attack alert for two weeks. Then she learned that a saucer had been brought to Wright Field, and she saw a picture of it. The Air Force had feared that because of what they found in the saucer... It had transmitted valuable information elsewhere, and they expected a possible attack. 
I think the saucer was found around Columbus, Ohio, but I'm not sure. Mosley, however, was well aware of all the stories circulating about crashed flying saucers being in the custody of the Air Force. At the time I received this letter, I'd already been making an intensive investigation of saucers for almost a year, and in the course of my research, I'd come across many strange rumors, some much stranger than this one. Many of those rumors concerned alleged captured saucers and little men from outer space found in them. A professor of anthropology at Columbia University had supposedly been called out to Wright-Patterson to examine these bodies. A scientist in Massachusetts had made x-rays of the bodies. A man in Los Angeles knew of a saucer that landed in Mexico. A man in Florida had talked to a man who in turn knew a man who had driven a truck for the army in which a captured saucer had been carried from the place where it had crashed to a nearby military base. A doctor in New York City had examined bodies of little men in a funeral parlor there. And so it went. The ones that I was able to check turned out to be hoaxes, or else they at least had no discoverable factual evidence to back them up. So Mosley was skeptical, to say the least, and, and attributed most of these stories to being influenced by what was at this point the discredited Frank Scully Aztec accounts. However, he then heard a tape recording of Miss Y provided by his friend, Mr. X. Of the recording, Mosley says this. Mr. X had a tape recording of this woman, herein called Miss Y, telling her story in some detail, and as I listened to the tape, I was immediately impressed with the apparent sincerity of the account. I decided that here at last was something concrete concerning captured saucers, not a rumor, but a first-hand account of what a woman working for the government had supposedly seen and heard in the course of her duties. I must say that my whole attitude toward Miss Y's story changed in the course of listening to that recording mainly because of the fact that the woman apparently knew what she was talking about, was uncertain on details as anyone would be in telling about an event months after it happened, and in general, related her story in such a manner that I could not help feeling she was probably telling the truth. After some badgering uh, of his friend and some detective work, Mosley obtained Miss Y's name, we don't get it, and her contact information and set out to interview her. What he learned was intriguing. The facts I obtained at my interview with Miss Y were as follows. She did not work at Wright-Patterson, but at another large military base in that area of the country. Nor was she a whack, but rather a civilian employee of the Signal Corps working with the Army and the FBI. She has since retired and moved away. Her duties were as a night girl on teletype, decoding messages, and in general handling classified material of many different sorts in the normal course of her work. In about August or September of 1952, she had reason to walk into the photographic lab operated by an army photographer who worked in her section of the communications building of the base. Among the prints that this photographer, herein called Mr. Z, was developing were about a dozen of a flying saucer. Mr. Z showed her the pictures, told her that he had taken them on a recent special assignment which had taken him to a location north of the base where an interplanetary saucer had crashed. A few days later, Miss Y handled messages which stated that the above-mentioned saucer was being taken through her base under heavy guard on its way to Wright-Patterson. These messages also informed her and a handful of others in the communications building that a red and white alert was on because of possible danger from other saucers to which the captured saucer might have transmitted messages. About two weeks later, after the saucer had been thoroughly examined by experts, it was felt that the saucers presented no immediate threat or danger, and the alarm was terminated. But at no time did anyone on the base, other than this handful of qualified personnel, know even the fact that an alert was on, let alone the reason for the alert. 
Miss Y mentioned that she had also heard somewhere that the government scientists had a great deal of trouble getting inside the saucer, and that it was composed of one or more alloys not found on this planet. This particular saucer had no living creatures inside it, and apparently was remote-controlled. Miss Y also said that she heard the dead bodies of humanoid creatures about five feet tall were found in other saucers captured previous to this one, but she has no first-hand knowledge of any saucers other than the one that came through her base. Mostly thinks she sounds sincere. She certainly uses the proper military terminology, and there's a verisimilitude about her story. But Mosley was a, a sound journalist and needs some corroboration, and he convinces Miss Y to give him Mr. Z's information, and he gets in contact with both Mr. Z and Mr. Z's superior officer. Mr. Z denied having any knowledge of flying saucers or ever having seen or photographed one. I talked to him for quite a while alone and later in the presence of his superior, a Signal Corps officer. So, as Mosley asks in the title of the article, who's lying? First, he looks at the possibility that Miss Y is telling the truth. First, let us assume that Miss Y is telling the truth. She says that the facts she gave me are public knowledge and that she was not breaking security to tell them to me. However, understandably, she did not want her name connected with this case. Miss Y also said that the government holds back these facts from the public because of fear of panic and also because they themselves don't have all the answers yet. If this is the case, it's evident why Mr. Z and his superior failed to confirm Miss Y's account. The true inside story of the flying saucers is known only to a few in our government, people in communications such as Miss Y, people in photography such as Mr. Z, but no one of these people knows the full story. Both only know his or her tiny part in the drama, and only a handful of brass at the very top have access to all the details. The story, as a whole, is as carefully guarded as any atomic or other high military secret, and like any other top secret, the fewer people who know it, the better. Therefore, in all likelihood, the officers in Project Blue Book, or at least those at the Public Information Office at the Pentagon, have little if any knowledge of all of this. Project Blue Book is only a cover-up, an attempt to analyze saucer sightings, while somewhere within a highly guarded section of right field, a super-secret group unknown to the sighting analyzers is prying open the saucers themselves and trying to find out what makes them and their extraterrestrial operators tick. Of course, what if the government is telling the truth? Now, let us consider the possibility that Miss Y is lying and that the government is correct in telling us that they have no material proof concerning saucers. In that case, Miss Y could have fabricated her whole story by rehashing Scully's account a little, bringing it up to date, then adding in her general knowledge of saucers and her background as an ex-employee at a military base. Mix well and serve to two suckers, Mr. X and myself. This would explain her uncertainty in regard to details. Her difficulty is that when she first told the story to Mr. X, she never dreamed that she would tell it to any others, including myself. And when she told it to me, she did not know that I'm a writer or that I would go personally to her base and check there. For her, the whole matter has gotten out of hand because Mr. Z and his superior were not at all happy over Miss Y's account as I related it to them. She is, in their eyes, guilty of spreading false rumors tending to undermine confidence in government, and for this she may be reprimanded. But here is the important point. The fact that army officials contradict Miss Y's story throws no light at all on whether her story is true or not, for they would be equally apt to contradict her in either case. 
If Miss Y is lying, it is quite natural that the military authorities would deny her story. If she's telling the truth, they deny her story because they have to. Even if Miss Y is now visited and requested to stop talking, this still won't give any indication of the reason for the visit. On the one hand, the authorities would be quick to stop any former employee from talking out of turn. On the other hand, they would probably be equally quick to stop an ex-employee from telling false rumors that are against the public interest. So, it is my opinion that unless or until I receive new evidence on the matter, I have absolutely no way of knowing where the truth of the matter lies. In that last portion, Mosley makes an important point. When these claims come down to one entity on each side saying opposite things, in the absence of corroborating evidence one way or the other, it's impossible to determine what the actual truth may be. He concludes the article by pledging to keep digging at the story, trying to uncover more information and evidence. Before we get back to it, uh, you can still check out past episodes, read some reviews of saucer-related stuff, and support the show with your love offerings at saucerlife.com. Thank you to those of you who have uh, contributed to the cause here. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife, or email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. And you can subscribe to The Saucer Life wherever you find podcasts, including Apple Podcasts or iTunes, whichever they're calling it now, Google Play, Spotify, etc. Next time, we, I, mean, I rather, am going to put together a contactee Mount Rushmore. Uh, which, which four should be on there? At least I'll make the case for four contactees I'd put on there. Uh, I, I suspect none of you are going to agree with me about at least half. That's, uh, that's next time on The Saucer Life. For now, let's get back to the show. Okay, our old, old friend Henry Madey of the Detroit Flying Saucer Club discussed three iterations of a, of a crash in 1949 or 1950 near Mexico City in the first issue of Vimana, their newsletter there at the Detroit Saucer Club. Here's the first one. Ernest Grace, automobile dealer, is a substantial down-to-earth individual with an acute sense of what's going on in the world. Returning from the General Motors School in 1949 and leaving Flint, Michigan on a Saturday afternoon, his car radio was suddenly interrupted by a special newscast message emanating from Mexico City. The announcer then tuned to a remote control pickup broadcast wherein an American lady reporter began describing the amazing fact that a saucer had landed in the area not too long before, somewhere in the outskirts, and now the section had been roped off, and authorities were attempting somehow to get into the craft. This reporter went on to describe how difficult it was to penetrate the hard surface of the large saucer which had landed that blowtorches, acetylene flame, etc. were of little help. She continued by saying that it appeared there were several smallish men slumped over, apparently unconscious or dead from our atmosphere. Keep tuned to this station, the cut-in announcer said, and we'll keep you notified as things progress. Ernie kept tuned in, but no other saucer newscast developed. Okay, I know there's no hangar mentioned there, and, and not even a mention of, of Wright-Patterson, but I just love the story of the man getting the strange broadcast through the car radio. Here's the next one. In an article in the Detroit Times of March 10th, 1949, Ray L. Dimmick, Los Angeles businessman, is quoted as saying that he had seen the wreckage of a flying saucer which, he stated, crashed recently near Mexico City. 
Dimmick said that he inspected the wrecked saucer last week at a secret military installation near Mexico City, escorted there by Mexican business associates, to this military base which was heavily guarded. Dimmick described the saucer as being 46 feet in diameter. He said that Mexican officials and some scientists believed the saucer was from Mars or some other planet. He said he was told by Mexican officials that the saucer was piloted by a strange type of man who was only 23 inches tall. He said the pilot was killed in the crash in hilly country only a few miles from the Mexican capital. Dimmick stated that military and government officials from the United States inspected the saucers. Apocryphal insertions. Was this same saucer thence carefully wrapped in tarpaulin, hoisted onto huge army conveyor trucks, and with heavy escort carted to Wright-Patterson Air Base in Dayton? Several excellent sources seem to believe so, stating that fields were crossed in the daytime and night so the convoy would escape going through large cities along main traffic arteries. So there, we see something that's very close to some of the other tales of the time, particularly at the Aztec story. Dimmick would later recant most of his story, saying that, that he was told the story rather than having witnessed it himself. The final example has Wright-Patterson content that is more well-integrated into the actual tale. Wednesday night, Saginaw, Michigan, prior to the Flying Saucer Council program, Rick Williamson and Henry Madej met a prominent photographer of Saginaw, very much interested in saucers. He then tells us the amazing story that his son revealed to him when he was stationed at Wright-Patterson about the same period. According to his son, a huge semi-truck came into the airbase with heavily canopied material jutting out of immense size. No one seemed to know anything about it, except that this young man told his father it was shortly driven to a far hangar, was it number 27, where no windows or accessible doors could be discerned. The grapevine thought one thing, but no official statement was ever made. This is all that we know about this subject, but it offers more than speculative evidence. Frank Scully related either this or a near episode in his Behind the Flying Saucers, and George Adamski certifies that the above incident is more than likely factual. What do you think? We are interested in further substantiation of this incident. It's got the George Adamski seal of approval, folks. It must be true. So in there, we have a reference to a Hangar 27, but not Hangar 18. Regardless, by the mid-50s, Wright Field, later Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, was central to several ongoing UFO narratives. Even as the crashed saucer stories faded a bit, Wright-Pat's role as the headquarters for whatever saucer initiative the Air Force bothered admitting to kept the facility in the conversation. In the 1970s, the Hangar 18 reference itself um, sort of started to appear and come into vogue, probably initially through the words of science fiction writer turned UFO investigator Robert Spencer Carr. We'll probably spend a whole episode on Carr and uh, something he was working on called Project Lure uh, down the road. But in 1974, during a debate on UFOs at the University of South Florida, Carr dropped a little bit of knowledge on the crowd. Here's how the Tampa Tribune reported it. One of the best-kept secrets of the U.S. government is that in Hangar 18 at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base near Dayton, Ohio, there are two flying saucers of unknown origin, a University of South Florida instructor said yesterday. They are not for sale, and anyway, one is in bad repair, having been damaged in a crash, Robert S. Carr, a USF mass communications instructor said. The other is in perfect condition. 
Carr made his statements in a debate with Dr. Heinrich Eichhorn von Wurm, chairman of the USF Astronomy Department, and critic of the unidentified flying saucer hysteria which, he says, so many Americans subscribe to these days. In their article, Collins and Falkstrom note that the Wright-Patterson material was sort of incidental to what Collins was trying to talk about during that debate, but the media jumped on it. They jumped on it to such a degree that the Air Force was, as they always are, was compelled to deny everything. An Air Force spokesman in Washington Friday denied claims by a former university lecturer that the Air Force has two UFOs in the bodies of 12 little space people in a hangar at Wright-Patterson Field in Ohio. The claim by Robert Carr, a former mass communications lecturer at the University of South Florida, was broadcast Friday by a number of radio stations in the state. Carr, 65, now living in Clearwater, was promoting a Tampa Flying Saucer Symposium to be sponsored November 1st through 3rd by a group called PSI for Psychic, Spiritual, and Intuition. An Air Force spokesman at the Pentagon quickly denied the report and said, quote, The Air Force has no little bodies of space people in any deep freeze at Wright-Patterson Field or anywhere else, end quote. Carr's wife, Catherine, said she hopes it all hasn't frightened people. Quote, I think people should be very happy to have visitors from outer space, end quote. PSI spokesman Lawrence Brill said there will be an admission charge of $37.50 for the symposium. He said Carr will get $100. Note that the hangar wasn't given a number here. Also, just for fun, be aware that $37.50 in today's money is around $193, which is a heck of a lot for a symposium about UFOs and related stuff. At least I think it is. I mean, you could have gone to three days at San Diego Comic-Con this year for about the same money. Also, Carr's $100 fee would be $514 today. UFO might just as well stand for unprecedented financial opportunity. I like to think this podcast has more inflation calculations than any other UFO podcast. Probably more than every other UFO podcast put together. It's not much uh, of an achievement, but I'm proud of it. So, during the 70s, uh, the Hangar 18 Appalachian comes along and it sticks. And we start seeing it pop up in all sorts of places. Like the 1980 thriller Hangar 18, which begins with a silent slide with a caption on it. In spite of official denials, rumors have continued to surface about what the government has been concealing from the American public at a secret Air Force hangar. But now, with the help of a few brave eyewitnesses who have stepped forward to share their knowledge of these events, the story can finally be told. Ooh. The movie itself is not that great, although uh, there are worse movies out there. Vincent Canby's review in the New York Times was not terribly kind. Hangar 18 is the sort of melodrama that pretends to be skeptical but requires that everyone watching it be profoundly gullible. It's about the efforts of the White House Chief of Staff to hide from the public the fact that the Air Force has caught a flying saucer and is studying it at a secret Texas base. The reason for this super Watergate cover-up is obscure, though it eventually costs dozens of lives and involves most of the members of the Central Intelligence Agency, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and maybe even the Boy Scouts, all of whom are sworn to secrecy. It seems that the incumbent president is afraid that if word of the saucer gets out, he'll lose the impending presidential election. After all, the movie tells us, when the president's chief rival once admitted he'd seen a flying saucer, his popularity at the polls dropped seven points. 
On this premise, Hangar 18 is constructed. A paper pup tent on top of a bonfire. Yes, Texas, not Dayton. As a bit of trivia, Hangar 18 was re-released with a different ending under the title Invasion Force. No, I don't know why. In 1981, Timothy Green Beckley released The Riddle of Hangar 18, a notebook-sized spiral comb-bound book that spent less time on the actual Hangar 18 than it did on the general topic of saucer crashes and retrievals. My copy, a 1987 reprint, includes two glossy photos from the Laredo, Texas crash, which will absolutely get an episode down the road. One of my my favorite things about the book is this bit from the first page. Rumors have long circulated to the effect that the U.S. government has in its possession the remains of spaceships which have crashed, as well as the bodies of alien beings who have died in these mishaps, most of which, but not all, are said to have transpired in the southwestern region of America during the late 40s and early 50s. According to these same sources, the crafts were dismantled and taken to several locations. A number of the dead aliens are supposed to have made their way to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, where they were put in deep-freeze compartments. Security guards were placed around the building, stated by most individuals in the know to be Hangar 18, and prevented anyone outside of the hire of military brass from entering the hangar. In terms of the timeline, it's been less than a decade since Carr mentioned Hangar 18 by name, and it's been already the title of a movie, and it gets the people in the know know about this treatment here. It's a solid part of the UFO narrative, and that happens very quickly. But it didn't always go uncontested. In 1996, a man named Robert Collins penned an expose posted on the internet about the supposed underground vaults beneath Wright-Patterson, and it begins with this preface. As a preamble note, I wish to emphasize to the reader that this vault report is just the tip of a greater iceberg that contains truths from many sources. These include many of the dedicated UFO researchers, as well as our government, which was reported to have enough sensitive, compartmented information documentation to fill a full-size Mayflower moving van from front to back, bottom to top. This, of course, doesn't begin to touch upon the amount of information our supposed aliens have. I suspect that the Mayflower Moving Company paid up to $15,000 or so for that plug. Collins goes on to explain that Hangar 18 is not really a thing. After the reported Roswell recovery of aliens and their flying saucer in July of 1947, the many stories and rumors suggested that these artifacts were brought to Wright-Patterson in Dayton, Ohio. If this was the case, then the next logical question would be where. The folklore rumors state that it was Hangar 18, but through the many years of intensive effort, the only evidence we found to support such stories was a series of buildings called 18A, B, and C, but no Hangar 18. The evidence does not support the idea that buildings 18A, B, C, etc. had anything to do with our little green men, as the stories go. But from all this investigation, it appears that hangars 4, A, B, and C, may have been our famous Hangar 18, and even today there are classified projects still being conducted in these hangars. It should go without saying that the phrases high-level sources and tech support are both encased within quotation marks for emphasis, always the hallmark of quality writing. 
There's no Hangar 18, apparently, but there's a vast maze of vaults, Collins says, where stuff is stored. What kind of stuff? Well, the most impressive thing is probably that alien bodies are there, entombed in cylinders filled with cryogenic liquid. Of course, having this knowledge is dangerous, as Collins's source at Wright-Patterson soon discovered. I just found out today from my contact at Wright-Patterson Civil Engineering that over two weeks ago he had his secret clearance pulled and was forced to go on leave for two weeks. This happened about five days after I posted a preliminary report on the underground vaults at Wright-Patterson. I was also told that my name was being passed around by a number of generals and colonels at Wright-Patterson. The civil engineering person was told that his clearance was being pulled, quote, for the good of the Air Force. The great thing about this, and by great, I of course mean eye-rollingly frustrating, is that every little bit of this could be completely fabricated, and there's really no way of verifying it one way or the other. This was also all part of a, a larger discussion at the time about alien bodies, or supposed alien bodies, including the uh, a lower jaw of a gray that the government supposedly held, and pictures circulating online comparing this supposed, I'm using that word a lot, but I probably should keep doing so, supposed alien lower jaw, and the close-ups of the lower jaw of the alien that was featured in the alien autopsy documentary that came out in 1995. I want you to know that I am I am very carefully avoiding putting myself in a position where I have to do an episode on the alien autopsy show. I, I just I just don't wanna. But it's it is it was it was fun stuff. So in general, what we see is that Hangar 18 and, and Wright Patterson more broadly get inserted into all kinds of different stories and iterations of the, the basic UFO cover-up narrative. As an example of that, here's a list of basically facts about Wright-Patterson presented on the old Paranet bulletin board system back in 1991. This was submitted by uh, one of the moderators, Don Allen. Captain Edward Ruppelt, while head of the U.S. Air Force's Air Technical Intelligence Center, Project Blue Book, was stationed at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. After the July 2, 1947 crash of a UFO at Roswell, the wreckage of the craft was loaded into a B-29 and shipped directly to Wright-Patterson. The crash of a 100-foot diameter saucer with 16 dead aliens aboard near Aztec, New Mexico, had its remains sent to Wright-Patterson shortly thereafter. Senator Barry Goldwater was denied access into a building at Wright-Patterson because it was classified above top secret. Goldwater did say that he understood that a plan was underway to release all or part of this material sometime in the future. Although he didn't know what it was, he did say that he was aware of the rumors. What we have here is a mix of absolutely true things, like Project Blue Book being based there, and, you know, less verifiable things. So, what were Allen's sources? Note, the above was taken from Timothy Good's 1988 UFO book entitled, Above Top Secret. Well, all right then. I uh, probably should have just looked at my own copy of Above Top Secret. As an aside, people's uh, signatures on these old Usenet posts are really interesting. Don Allen, for example, was an Amiga user back in 1991 and included in his signature the tagline, quote, Amiga for the best of us. Why use anything else? Smiley face, 
end quote. He also encouraged people to, quote, just say no, Illuminati, MJ-12, Grays, TLC, CFR, Fed, Bilderbergers, UN, equal New World Order, end quote. I have no idea what TLC refers to here. I assume it's an acronym like CFR for a Council on Foreign Relations, but maybe not, because what irritates me is that he capitalizes F-E-D, Fed, like it's an acronym, but it's not. It's an abbreviation for the Federal Reserve System. The saucer life. Come for the inflation calculations. Stay for the Usenet signature parsing. But Alan did mention something in his list of Wright-Patterson fun facts that's gained a, a solid place in the lore and is, is verifiable. Senator Barry Goldwater's multiple attempts to learn more about the Air Force's UFO efforts. Those, uh, those attempts didn't work, and there are several letters out there on the internet where Goldwater is lamenting that the Air Force is you know, choosing not to cooperate and answer his questions. Hangar 18, really, Wright-Patterson in general, is a place with an amazing amount of longevity in UFO folklore. Despite being eclipsed in many ways by Area 51 uh, in the late 80s and Hollywood placing Hangar 18 in Texas for some reason, it remains fascinating. And as far as I know, no one has tried to run a music festival there, which endears it to me even more. There are links in the show notes to sources we used in this episode, particularly the Collins and Falkstrom uh, history of Hangar 18 references, as well as the broader trope of there must be a place where they take the crashed saucers. Where is it? We couldn't have made this episode what it was without some key references we found in those articles. There's also a link uh, in the show notes to the NPR, uh, the episode of NPR's It's Been a Minute, where uh, I was on to discuss the Storm Area 51 phenomenon. The associate producer of The Saucer Life is Simpson J. Hanover III. The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media, LLC. Chizo Media, working for the good of mankind along the lines of truth. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you. <laughs>